Hello and welcome to episode 54 of On Liberty. I'm Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst here at the Centre for Independent Studies. Today I'm delighted that we're going to be talking to Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute, columnist for The Australian and first time CIS guest, we finally caught him, Chris Merritt. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi there. So today we're going to be talking about all things ICAC, which is something that Chris has written about extensively. So to kick us off, Chris, I think it would be good if you could just give us a very brief outline of why ICAC was instituted and whether in the beginning you think it was justified. Right. It, it was definitely necessary. Um, the logic for it was compelling. We've got to go back to 1988. New South Wales was reeling from massive, significant corruption problems. Uh, going to the top of, not the top, but very close to the top of the judiciary, politics, uh, all over the place. It was just horrific. Uh, Nick Greiner, uh, when he was in opposition, promised to do something about this. Um, he, Gary Sturgis, his uh, chief advisor, helped primarily helped design this thing. At the time, and we're talking 1988, um, it was absolutely necessary. The top priority was to restore the standing of New South Wales. It was a bit of a laughing stock in the entire, the entire country it was basically poking fun at New South Wales. So it was necessary, but in retrospect, it's become very, very clear that the purpose, which was to restore the standing of New South Wales, um, that purpose is still there, but it's a different problem now. The problem has been that the, the powers that were vested in this commission uh, were extraordinary. So they abandoned uh, rights and privileges and procedures uh, that are, uh, have grown up over centuries uh, for, for good reason, to protect uh, individuals when they're hauled before the justice system from an abuse of power to ensure that everyone was treated fairly, uh, that there was that the state, with all its enormous coercive power, um, was not given a complete upper hand. That it was a fair fight whenever people were accused of wrongdoing. Um, at the time, it was necessary to crack down on corruption, and those rights were given uh, very little weight. And you can see this in Nick Grimes' second reading speech at the time, which I've gone back and had a look at. He 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 reckoned that the big problem would probably be, he expected there might be criticism, but he hadn't gone far enough in empowering this new organisation. Um, come forward uh, two or three decades, and what we've got uh, is an organisation that um, its interests have become absolutely overwhelmingly important to both sides of politics. Just go back to 2014, 2015. 2014, there's two, case, there's two pieces of legislation that uh, really, really disclose the impact of this commission. Um, 2014, there was um, ex, uh, expropriation legislation, which took away property rights from two mining companies, uh, New Coal Resources and Cascade Coal. After an ICAC inquiry, spectacular ICAC inquiry, where uh, there were front page stories for weeks and weeks and weeks about 
massive corruption in the state. Uh, Barry O'Farrell was Premier. Um, he raced straight into Parliament and said, look, this is terrible. These coal exploration licences were tainted by corruption. You've all seen what, uh, what ICAC's had to say about it. ICAC have recommended that these coal exploration licences be cancelled and that compensation be paid to innocent parties. Um, the problem is that, let, let's look at just one company, New Coal, New Coal Resources. There were so five findings of corruption to do with New Coal Resources. New Coal bought a coal exploration license from a company called Doyle's Creek Mining. 14 months, it was 14 months after the license was issued that New Coal emerged on the scene and bought this company. The, uh, the accusation was that the New South Wales government um, through Ian MacDonald had engaged in an act of corruption um, with Doyle's Creek Mining by issuing the license to Doyle's Creek Mining to benefit that company's chairman, John Maitland. Okay, go forward a little bit. They were convicted of misconduct in public office. And in 2019, their convictions were quashed. They'd been to prison um, and their convictions were quashed. They're still awaiting retrial. Um, so there's no finding of wrongdoing about those guys. So what about the others? There are three other people from Doyle's Creek Mining who were directors one of them, uh, Craig Ransley, was prosecuted twice. Uh, all these three were declared corrupt by ICAC. Ransley was prosecuted twice and acquitted twice. Okay, what about the other two? Uh, Mike Chester and Andrew Poole uh, were directors of DCM. They joined New Coal. They were declared corrupt. Neither of them were ever prosecuted. Chester was uh, not even referred to the DPP by ICAC. Poole was referred to the DPP. Please give us your opinion on whether this fellow uh, should be prosecuted. DPP came back and said, no, he shouldn't be prosecuted. No wrongdoing here. What about Chester? Chester never had an opportunity to get into a court and clear his name. He, he and the other three on the public record are corrupt, but they've never been prosecuted. Ramsley, at least he had the good fortune, it sounds a little bit strange, but he had the good fortune to be prosecuted twice and twice to be acquitted. So his presumption of innocence is entirely intact, yet he is corrupt, according to ICAC. All those things go to their reputation, but what is really worrying is that on the basis of these accusations of corruption from ICAC, Barry O'Farrell uh, went into Parliament and shepherded through legislation to strip this company, um, this is New Coal, which remember, New Coal didn't benefit initially from this licence. It was issued to a separate legal entity, Doyle's Creek Mining. New Coal comes along 14 months later, pays $94 million for Doyle's Creek Mining and was quite happy to pour, do everything it was required to do under the, uh, the license agreement with the government, which is improve up the deposit of coal, do all sorts of things, spend millions of dollars. I think it was about $40 million extra 
on exploration, um, geology, all sorts of things, core samples to meet their obligations to the New South Wales government. They had gone and employed lawyers to check the veracity of the license. Was this issued properly? Yes, it was issued properly. Then ICAC comes along, conducts an inquiry and tells the government, oh, I'm sorry, this, uh, uh, this license was not issued properly. So who suffers here? New Coal, which is effectively an innocent party with thousands of um, institutional shareholders and family shareholders in the Hunter Valley. American institutions had invested millions of dollars in this company. Families in the Hunter Valley and around Maitland particularly, where this company was based, had invested life savings in New Coal on the basis of, we know these people, uh, we know they're straight shooters, they wouldn't have done anything wrong, and they didn't do anything wrong. But they're, they're the ones who have been made to suffer. They've suffered the penalty of losing their all their money. Uh, the, um, the value of this company has been trashed. Uh, remember, they paid 94 million, then poured in an extra 40 million um, in their obligations to the government. And they've done nothing wrong. Um, and how does this stand? The, the source of this goes back to ICAC. ICAC had recommended that because of what ICAC said was uh, the corrupt nature in which this uh, license was issued, it should be canceled. But ICAC, even ICAC had recommended that innocent parties be compensated. But Barry O'Farrell didn't do that. He, his legislation, which is still on the books by the way, uh, prevents the payment of compensation. So you've got thousands of families that have lost their savings. You've got American, not just American, but Japanese institutions as well, who had invested in New South Wales on the basis that this is a state where the rule of law prevails, where if a company obeys the requirements set down in the Mining Act, that it's, it's quite safe to invest and uh, develop coal deposits, do any, anything that's permitted by law in this state. And that's been cast into doubt. Now, what about the, the original issuing of the license? Remember, that was Ian MacDonald and John Maitland, both convicted of misconduct. MacDonald was convicted of misconduct in public office and Maitland was convicted of being an accessory. Now, the, uh, their, their convictions have been quashed ostensibly what many would because of what many people would see as a legal technicality because the jury was um, uh, given a, uh, an incorrect uh, briefing by the judge on what what the test is for misconduct in in public office and the Court of Appeal, a five-judge Court of Appeal, a special Court of Appeal, which carries enormous weight, normally it's three, it ruled unanimously that uh, they reformulated the law on what is misconduct in public office. And that clarified a lot of the confusion about this law. The original conviction is, uh, in retrospect, happened because of the confusion over the legal test. So this five-judge uh, Court of Appeal clarified the law and introduced what's called a but-for test. So if you 
uh, if you're a public policymaker and you make a decision that benefits the community, but also has a collateral benefit to an identified individual or groups of individual groups of individuals, before this but for test was introduced, you were vulnerable. You, you could have been pinged by ICAC for helping a mate, which is exactly what uh, the accusation ICAC made against Dean MacDonald. Um, but the but for test, it works like this. You can make a decision and it will be uh, legitimate and valid as long as that decision would have been, would not have how does it go? Would, if it would have been made, regardless of the, the benefit that uh, is con, uh, bestowed upon this identif identifiable party, it's legitimate. But if you would not have made that decision, but for the benefit on this um, identifiable party, you're in strife. Now that's, where did that come from? Um, that came from submissions made by legal counsel for Ian MacDonald and John Maitland, and that's the law. So if there is a, a retrial for these two fellows, it'll be determined on the, the reformulated law of misconduct in public office that has its origins in submissions made by the two, these two men. Now, there's been no decision made yet on whether there will be a retrial. And I'm speculating here, but I suspect that the reason for that is that there are related um, uh, proceedings which have not been finalized uh, over the issuing of uh, a license to Cascade Coal or a, a precursor company to Cascade Coal. Um, Ian McDonald again is involved. So I think what's going to happen is this, the judgment's now reserved on, on this one. It's, it's actually um, expected very shortly. Uh, Justice Elizabeth Fullerton of the New South Wales Supreme Court is, uh, and has, has been considering her ruling for well, more than a month, uh, getting on to two months. So it can't be too long, but that, that will determine whether the issuing of the license to um, to, that was eventually bought by Cascade Coal, whether that was affected by an act of corruption, by misconduct in public office. But in both these cases, in the new coal license, which was taken away by the government, and the Cascade Coal license, which was taken away by the government, both those companies are effectively newbies. They came along after the license was originally issued to another company. In uh, Newcoll's case, it was Doyle's Creek Mining. In the Cascade case, it was a company known as Monaro, Monaro Mining. Uh, Cascade only got its license after Monaro Mining was unable to uh, come up with the $25 million it had promised to give to the New South Wales government in return for being allocated this license. So, the way I see it is this, even if the process of issuing both those licenses, the, the one to DCM and the one to Monaro, if that process was tainted by corruption, 
why have penalties been imposed on third parties, companies that came along long afterwards and effectively bought these licenses? Uh, New Coal bought Doyle's Creek Mining only to obtain the exploration license and was then made to suffer a massive financial penalty, which I just want to jump in there for, for a second, Chris, because you, you've just outlined in excellent detail those, those two cases and the potential problems with them. But I just, I just want to really focus on something for a second because you, you've, brought up, you've brought up a lot of issues. You've got these, these two mining companies that had their licenses taken away, reputational damage, you know, families losing their, their life savings. I just would like to get your sense of how unprecedented is it i mean well i suppose is there a precedent for this is is this you know in a system like new south wales where you know we say we believe in the rule of law and these sort of things how how peculiar are these cases extremely peculiar um look particularly in when it comes to mining um, new south wales has taken back other exploration licenses from from multinational companies uh chinese companies uh, and has paid compensation. Um, it, it's, it's very strange, extremely strange, that companies and shareholders who have done absolutely nothing wrong have been made to suffer a penalty. Now, you've you just got to theorise why would this happen? And I think the, the only possible reason is the massive publicity um, that had been associated with the, the original uh, coal inquiries conducted by ICAC uh, 2013, 2014. Huge headlines all over the place. Uh, but when you piece it all together, the accusations that were made at those inquiries and the findings in ICAC's reports, they don't gel with what the courts are finding. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, John McGuigan is the chairman of Cascade Coal. Um, he's a former global managing partner of Baker and McKenzie. Um, he was declared corrupt by ICAC along with uh, some other directors. Now, he was in the process of securing declarations. He and his fellow directors are in the process of securing declarations from the New South Wales Court of Appeal, Margaret Beasley, when she was president of the Court of Appeal, had um, circulated a draft declaration um, to John McGuigan, uh, ICAC, and I think it was about four or five other people who were involved in this uh, legal action, stating that ICAC had no authority to make um, uh, corruption findings against McGuigan and others that was beyond jurisdiction and a nullity. Now, fine, why didn't that go ahead? Um, because uh, ICAC had, uh, this, this followed, I'll go back five, five seconds. This followed a High Court ruling in a case involving Margaret Kinnean, where it was found that ICAC had misunderstood its governing, its governing act about its jurisdiction, misunderstood how wide its powers were and had been making unlawful uh, uh, declarations and holding unlawful investigations. Um, 128 people, I think, I think that's the figure, had been affected by this uh, unlawful 
declarations that affected their reputations without a proper basis in law. So McGuigan was, uh, uh, and the others, were quite keen to get into court and, and, and clear their names. I mean, the former managing partner of uh, a global law firm uh, has a big interest in doing this. But ICAC was keen to avoid being uh, shown to have uh, misunderstood the law and have effectively um, breached the limits on its jurisdiction. So it went down to Macquarie Street when Mike Baird was, was Premier and had discussions. And as a result, uh, uh, Baird's government prepared legislation that retrospectively validated ICAC's unlawful conduct. Um, it provided ICAC with a copy of this draft legislation uh, the day before uh, Margaret Beasley, who was president of the Court of Appeal, circulated her draft declaration um, saying, oh, by the way, McGuigan and all these others, um, those findings have no basis in law and are a nullity. ICAC knew before that draft declara declaration was circulated that the law was about to change and was about to change retrospectively. So the effect of that was in the morning uh, when this law took effect, um, ICAC uh, was, uh, had engaged in unlawful conduct, uh, government solicitors had uh, accepted this in correspondence with um, McGuigan and the Cascade parties. In the afternoon, when the, the law took effect, uh, that unlawful conduct was disappeared and uh, uh, ICAC had engaged in conduct that was valid by, by uh, legislative fiat. Now, what did that mean? Well, it meant that all those people who were unlawfully tainted were deprived of a remedy. The doors of the courts were closed uh, by legislate, legislative fiat. They could no longer go along to an independent court like anybody else and say, oh, look, by the way, I've been unlawfully damaged um, and I'm seeking a, a remedy. That's the role of the judiciary. The independent judiciary is there to provide remedies for people who have been affected by wrongdoing, unlawful wrongdoing. And in this case, the unlawful wrongdoer was an agency of the New South Wales government. And the New South Wales government, clearly fearing uh, uh, claims for compensation, simply changed the law. Uh, now, what sort of signal does that tell you? If you're going to do business in the state of New South Wales and a government agency causes you unlawful damage, are you at risk of losing your rights your access to justice on the basis of this precedent, I'd say you are. It depends whether the government likes you or not. Uh, it also depends on whether it's in the government's political interest. And you've got to remember the, the media had gone along with this effectively. Um, and I don't mind admitting, I, for a long time, I, I, was a, uh, I was a closet fan of ICAC. It was only when ICAC started uh, pursuing Margaret Keneen as a, a silk and is now president of the, the Rule of Law Institute, that uh, my eyebrows went up because I knew Miss Keneen a little and I now know her a great deal better. But what I, I knew was that she was no crook, yet here was she being pursued by this 
this agency. Um, so when you, anyway, long story short, those are my concerns that there's been a, uh, a very regrettable impact on uh, public policy in New South Wales because of this commission. Now there have been a series of uh, reforms and restructures that have taken place since this time instead of one commissioner, effectively uh, unworried by anyone looking over her shoulder or his shoulder, we've now got three commissioners and um, to a degree, they've got to act in concert. They look over each other's shoulders a bit, which is great, that's great, that's, but it's not enough. Um, the, um, the problem with this commission is that it, it gets down to two things. They make public findings of corruption, uh, which can destroy someone's reputation forever, regardless of whether the individual concerned has complied with the law and whether the courts uh, in later proceedings validate that and say, look, you've complied with the law, um, you're not guilty of anything. Once you've got a, um, a corruption finding against you in New South Wales, it sticks, it's, it's there indelibly. The only appeal against ICAC's um, findings uh, is judicial review, which is a, a very limited grounds for review. Uh, it's a, whether the, the commission has made an error of law, i.e. exceeded its jurisdiction, which is what happened in the, the Canine case. Um, it also happened to, uh, uh, Nick Griner, uh, by coincidence, um, that's why ICAC's original finding of corruption against Nick Griner was struck down uh, because they'd exceeded their jurisdiction in that case. But anyway, bottom line is there's, there's no appeal on the merits. Um, they can get their facts wrong and that doesn't matter. Um, as long as they don't make an error of law, um, you are indelibly corrupt forever, uh, regardless of what a uh, a Supreme Court judge or a Court of Appeal might say. Um, they might say, look, you, you have a, a, there's no criminal conduct here. Um, you're free to go about your business. And in, in this state, uh, not just in this state, but in this country, the presumption of innocence works this way. You're, you're entitled to do anything you like, as long as you stay within the bounds of the law. Now, ICAC comes along and complicates that, uh, not just complicates it, but basically qualifies it. Um, so now we're in the situation where everybody who is not guilty of, a, of an offence is entitled to a presumption of innocence. But ICAC says, well, you can be entitled to a presumption of innocence, but you can be corrupt and referred to the DPP for an opinion you can be corrupt and not referred to the DPP for advice on whether you should be prosecuted. You can be corrupt and found guilty by a court and you can be corrupt and found not guilty by a court. Now, what's the purpose of a body of law? If the purpose of a body of law is to send a clear signal to the community about what your rights and obligations are, uh, it doesn't work anymore, not in New South Wales. Um, your presumption of innocence has been qualified. Um, it's been 
you can be as innocent as you like until ICAC gets its hands on you and makes a, a, a declaration. And then you'll... There again, Chris, because we're, uh, we're quickly running out of time. Just on a point there, we've got a, uh, a question from one of our viewers that I think touches nicely on a couple of those issues there that you've been discussing. So question from uh, Christopher, thank you for watching, is abuses of power by bodies like ICAC are inevitable unless safeguards are put in place. So I'll put to you, uh, Chris Merritt, what safeguards would be sufficient? Look, the, the, um, let's look at South Australia, uh, one of the uh, states uh, with a commission. They've got an independent commission against, commissioner against corruption. No public findings, no public hearings. That means it, it's an orthodox part of the uh, justice system. It investigates a matter um, thoroughly. It produces a report and it uh, doesn't declare that publicly, just like the police. The police conduct an investigation. Um, they uh, provide a brief of evidence to the DPP and that's what happens in South Australia. So if the DPP disagrees or the courts disagree with what ICAC decides in South Australia, no damage is done. The supremacy of the courts, the supremacy when it comes to declaring rights and liabilities, that's the exclusive prerogative of the judiciary, or it should be. Um, and that's how it works in South Australia. And that's how it should work here. That would mean that if ICAC makes a mistake uh, or uh, exceeds its jurisdiction and investigates something that it shouldn't investigate and then hands all that material over to the DPP and the DPP uh, gives it to a, a number of lawyers and they look at it and say, oh, gee, this is missing, that's not right. Um, send it back. If they can fix it, well, maybe then we'll launch a prosecution but until they can, let's not. All those errors in New South Wales uh, are not addressed. Uh, ICAT can make mistakes in its public hearings um, and there's no remedy. Uh, there should be a remedy. <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna have a public hearing and a public finding, at the very least, there should be an appeal on the merits, not just a limited appeal on a question of law, but an easier solution and a quicker, more efficient and orthodox solution would simply be to do away with these uh, public hearings, which we've seen in the case of um, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, can rapidly descend into prurience. Uh, let's have a look at the Premier's love life. Uh, won't that be interesting? Uh, they'd already asked her a number of questions about this in private hearing and then repeated the same process in public and you've got to ask yourself what's the public interest there um, I don't think there's any but that, that sort of reform doing away with public hearings making ICAC become part of the mainstream orthodox justice system I think that would improve things out of sight it would, would definitely mean that a lot of bread and circuses would disappear front page sensational stories that come out of ICAC's hearings would disappear, which is good. <laughs> I mean, it's bad for the media to report things that subsequently are shown to be baseless. And that's 
in the num in the the coal inquiries, that's what's happened. Uh, the media has been hoodwinked essentially into reporting um, these findings as if they were findings of law. Remember, ICAC adopts the outward appearance of a court, bow to the commissioner, set up like a courtroom. Um, it's not a court. It, it's stripped of the checks and balances and procedural safeguards that I mean the courts deserve the respect they get, whereas ICAC is a commission, not part of the judiciary, it's part of the executive branch of government. Uh, it's, um, it's caused a massive amount of confusion. If it were part of the investigative branch and that alone, just like it is in South Australia, it would be, you'd still be able to explore corruption, but you wouldn't be a, the propensity for public mistakes and the public demolition of private reputation uh, would be addressed. And I, I think that's the way to go. I sure hope that uh, people have been listening to your ideas for, for reforms, Chris Merritt. It's been fantastic to talk to you, but unfortunately we are out of time. Thank you very much for joining us today, Chris. Quite okay. That was Chris Merritt, who you can find at the Rule of Law Institute and his columns in The Australian on a Friday. I'm Monica Wilkie. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.